Welcome to the Resourceful HDR podcast. I'm Sally Purcell, and in this podcast, I explore high degree research, HDR, career and employment experiences, how individuals have made career decisions, navigated transitions, and helped others to build a career. In Australia, HDR usually includes Master of Research, PhDs, and professional doctorates. I hope you enjoy this podcast. This podcast was recorded via Zoom, so I apologise for any sound issues. My guest today on the Resourceful HDR podcast is Dr. Melanie Zeppel. Melanie is a data scientist and researcher. Her multidisciplinary research spans experimental design and modelling impacts of customer user experience, climate change, as well as genomic medicine, including childhood cancer and other conditions. Melanie was awarded 2019 Scopus Researcher of the Year in Sustainability. She has also been awarded over $1.9 million in competitive funding, including ARC DECRA and ARC Discovery Grants, and has over 55 peer-reviewed publications. Melanie's experience over the previous 15 years includes measuring and modelling impacts of drought, elevated CO2 and heat waves on plant physiology at national and global scales. Recently, Melanie has made the transition from an academic role to one as a statistical analyst in the corporate sector. So thanks for joining me, Melanie. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start with my standard question, which is what led you to do a PhD and did you have any career plans or some ideas at that stage? That's an excellent question. I decided I wanted to do a PhD because I was working at the time at the Australian Museum and there was lots of redundancies happening and I could see that the job security was decreasing and I was a casual and I had done a careers testing quiz, an aptitude test and I was suited to be a scientist. So I thought PhD is the next logical step. No career plan past that. You didn't have career plans then, but as you were going along, you probably came up with some and then they changed along the way. Could you talk about your career path since you completed your PhD? Sure. So I started my PhD, I think, in about 2003, 17 years ago, and I I was very ambitious and driven and completed my PhD in three and a half years. And then I did a postdoc at the lab that I was working in and I won an ARC discovery during that period. And when I submitted my thesis, I was eight months pregnant with my first child. And then I had my second child two years later. So I was an early career researcher at the same time I was a parent and I won a Macquarie Uni Research Fellowship. So one of my PhD supervisors had this brilliant wife who was a statistician and she's now an um, ASC laureate fellow, Belinda Medlin. And she commented on one of my thesis chapters in such a positive, lovely way. And her insights were so profound and useful and also motivational instead of like red pen slashes. I thought I'd really love to work for her. So Also, she was working at Macquarie at the time and Macquarie had some of the most successful mothers in the Sydney Basin. So I thought, are there any mothers who have international reputations and are doing well? And at that time, Macquarie was the only university that had 
Michelle Leishman, Leslie Hughes, Mariella, a bunch of people. And I just thought, okay, I want to work with Belinda at Macquarie Uni. So I wrote a Macquarie Uni Research Fellowship once, um, didn't get accepted. Then I wrote it the next year. You know, so there's a message in there, just keep applying and each year you'll get stronger. And then I went to work with her in 2009 and I was just having a conversation with some of my ex Macquarie friends last night and she has on WhatsApp conversation, she has had given, given us some of the best statistical insights and she's been one of the best, I don't know, examples of quality work and having a really good reputation. So I was really lucky to work with her. And then I got a DECRA, which was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And I got to work with the people who I thought were the best researchers in the world and fly and work with them and publish on what I thought was the most novel, interesting work. And so for six years, I had career autonomy and I didn't really answer to anyone. And the next step in an academic career is normally you get a faculty position and also you're supposed to do some overseas travel or something like that, which I don't know how people manage with spouses and children. Well, you know, anyway, good luck. So I was applying for positions in Maine University and Columbia University in the United States and also Perth. I was offered a position in Perth, which was the next logical step. It was a permanent job. But by that point, I had a mortgage and two children and the grandparents were helping with the kids once or twice a week and in school holidays. So as most of you know, the school holidays are about 12 weeks a year. And if two parents have four weeks, that's eight. And the number of weeks of annual leave is smaller than the number of weeks of school holidays. So for various reasons, I decided to turn down the faculty position at Perth because I just thought I would have a horrible life. I wouldn't be able to be a productive academic so then I took a career shift and I actually spent a year working in science and gender equity at Macquarie in human resources, which is lovely, working on their Athena Swan project, which is a really wonderful opportunity. And then I worked for three years in health economics. And in about November last year, various things happened to suggest that it was time for me to leave the lab that I was in. And also at the same time, there was a lot of redundancies and faculty closures happening. So I thought maybe time to, well, I definitely started applying for other jobs, but I also would have dinner about once a quarter with a bunch of ex-colleagues from Macquarie Uni and two of them had left academia and they seemed so calm and so relaxed. And so, I don't know, you know, at peace with themselves. And also they talked about how they finished work at five o'clock and then they'll go for a run with their friends and just was like, really, you know, is that what you do? I remember saying to one of them, oh, I really wish that I'd got a job outside academia and she said we all make choices so I decided to start applying for jobs in November I was applying for equally academic jobs and industry jobs but not surprisingly the number of people who apply for academic jobs is you know uh, if there's one academic job maybe 100 people will apply whereas with industry jobs there's so many more jobs available that 
there's growth industries, people are hiring. So I got offered a job in May and haven't looked back. <laughs> well done. So interesting because what you're talking about is the shift that you undertook as well as a person and looking at what you wanted at a different stage of your life when those friends were talking about how their life looks and you're sort of looking at that and going, well, I wouldn't mind some of that too. So those incredibly long hours you'd once worked, you just weren't really prepared to do that anymore by the sounds of things. Yeah. As it turns out, I still work long hours, but that's because I, I like learning. I'm kind of doing courses in the evenings and Curiously, my new role has this paradigm. So previously in academia, you would be asked to do disparate jobs by different people, for example, review papers or review grants or teach, but there's no one person saying that's not the best use of your time. How about focus? Whereas now my boss and my boss's boss are telling me to stop working in the evening, stop working long hours, prioritize my health, prioritize my family and it's just a paradigm that I'm like I'm retraining myself out of being work a workaholic you know I'm just doing really really fun training courses in the evenings basically yeah so it's more your choice rather than an, an choice. yeah and actually the opposite of an expectation as you say in your current role they're looking out for you and you know because they care about you but also they realize that you're going to be at your best and it might if you told me this two years ago when I was working in academia I might say oh it must really be so painful having someone prioritize your time but it's refreshing because to have someone say that project just as a heads up from a big picture I don't think that one's really going to go anywhere so you're welcome to work on it but probably not going to be a good place and I, I wonder if a lot of academics love saying yes and like, hey, do you want to review? Yes, I should review papers. Or, hey, do you want to review an international grant? Yes, I'd love to. I'll learn things. Or, hey, do you want to speak at this conference? Yes, what a great opportunity. And when you see all the criteria for promotion, ah, I should do this, I should do that. And nobody is saying, cut back, spend some time with your friends and family and do your hobbies and think about your long-term health. So. Yeah, actually in in the corporate world, they're more likely to look at you and notice what you're doing and and actually give you a promotion without you necessarily seeking. Yeah, that is true. My brother said, Mel, I reckon you will be five times as happy and paid five times as much. So I'm definitely more happy. Yeah. You've had that real challenge of, of starting a job during a pandemic and so you as yeah. far as I know, you haven't actually been in the office. Is that right? That is true. So you've talked about deciding to make that shift and you're applying for a whole range of jobs, but then you were offered this position. Can you talk us through what the process you went through to yeah. get this position you have now? A fascinating process of applying for a job during COVID is, and I've met some other people, the company that I'm at has hired a bunch of people during COVID and we all have not been into the office. We all have not met our bosses face-to-face. Actually, I'm having coffee tomorrow morning with my recruiter who I've never met face-to-face, but the whole process in case other people want to do this is I went on LinkedIn and I was advised a while back to have a LinkedIn profile that is up-to-date and polished and active. And there's a little box that you can tick open to recruiters. So I ticked that and that was the real start open to recruiters so then somebody messaged me are you interested in a job and I was like yes yes 
Meanwhile, I was applying for jobs left, right and centre and I had an interview in about November or December. I actually had two interviews, but that one uh, ended up falling through, but it was great practice having the job interviews and it turns out that they were partly owned by Qantas. So probably that was not the best place to end up. I, I reached a point where I just, I really wanted another job. And so I was going on Seek and using really broad search terms and applying for jobs and updating my CV. I got some old friends and colleagues who were in industry to proofread my CV and comment. And then by the time, I think the recruiter contacted me in about maybe February or March and I sent him my CV and we had a chat about what my background was and what I was looking for. And then he had a chat with my current boss. Another message in this is have a really strong network of ex-colleagues and friends. And I think it's really important to have a network of colleagues and friends who work in industry because I said to one of my friends, I've been contacted about a job in the same large organization that you work for. And she said, oh, they're having a hiring freeze next week. So I was like, oh, I rang the recruiter and said, did you know that there's a hiring freeze next week? He said, no. So I said, I'm happy to expedite this. And how about I have a phone call with the potential boss tomorrow? And so we did that. And then we ended up having a, a video interview and put on some makeup to create a good impression. And then the, the video failed because both my kids were at home <laughs> doing homeschooling. So I saw him and he didn't see me, he just heard my voice. And I was also really impressed by, one, he was articulate, two, he was very, very intellectually sharp. And I thought, yes, and he had the t-shirt and I thought, perfect, I could work. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, am I gonna have to wear high heels and, you know, stockings? And I thought, if boss who's interviewing me in a t-shirt like that, that works. So then the recruiter said, oh, can you write 200 words? The boss just wants to know that you're articulate and can write English and your motivation. So I did that. It got, got my brother to edit it, sent that on the Friday. I went to my brother's house, gave me a couple of practice interviews. And he said, you come across right now, like you're lacking a bit of confidence. And maybe that's because of what's been happening at the university. And what you need to do is remember, you've got some really awesome skills and answer with this tone. What three words do you want people to remember you when they interact with you? So I, I wrote down like something like confident and something and something. And the practice interview really, really helped. Back to the timeline, I sent the 200 words to the recruitment agency. He sent them to the boss on the Friday night. And meanwhile, we'd been told by university not to come into campus. So in previous jobs, I met my recruitment consultants face-to-face -face and would have interviews face-to-face, -face, but I had not met any of these people face-to-face. -face. So then on Monday at about two o'clock, they said, yes, there's going to be a hiring freeze starting tomorrow. If you can get three referees by 5 p.m. today, i.e. in the next three hours, we'll give you a letter of offer. So I was like, whoa, and my heart started pounding. And I had two referees who were both distinguished professors who, of course, were in the middle of important things. So I started racking my brains going, who have I worked with who knows my working style and experience and can comment in the next three hours? 
And one is an amazing, lovely friend who I met through Twitter and we wrote a paper together. And another was somebody who I worked with at Macquarie in diversity and equity. And another one was a dear colleague who was with my team at the time. So they all, they all got their electronic things in, submitted them. And one of them rang up and said, can you remind me what we're working on together? And okay. So they all got them in on time and that was amazing and surprising. And then I got the letter of offer the next day and I had to go through these background checks and eventually they offered to me the job and I started on the 4th of May, which is Star Wars Day. And I have never been into the office. They shipped me a chair. This is one of the upsides of working in industry. I've got this really super duper ergonomic fancy chair. They shipped a laptop to me. They shipped a work phone to me, which when the Wi-Fi dies, I just hotspot from the work phone and And then I had to resign electronically and I had my farewell electronically. And now I'm in the interesting position of starting a new job, having never met anyone face-to-face. But it's glorious. I love it. I love my new boss. I love the opportunities. I love people who treat me with a lot of respect now. And I have a lot of autonomy. There's a surprising amount of, well, we trust you. You know, you go with what you think. And as a data scientist, I said, I have, I have not been using R recently. I've been using other packages. And they said, we, we don't really care. We just want your thinking. Like you can learn the tools, you can learn Python, you can learn R. We just want somebody who has this critical thinking and your thinking. And basically they hired me based on my CV, a phone call and 200 written words. And also he checked my LinkedIn profile. So this is another tip you know notifies you who's checked your linkedin profile so i saw he did and then he said we've got a mutual friend who was a phd student in biology do you know this person was like oh yeah and he said oh he's my friend he's really really bright so i think maybe he thought that i was going to be as like bright and competent as his friend from biology so thank you linkedin that's right and that's really common i would always check linkedin and what you just described is can be all these things that come into play like your colleague and his friend you can't plan for that so you know luckily it's someone he liked it could go the other way so some of it's just out of your control but the bits that you can control then you've done those really well and you're very proactive that's the other side when you talked about how that your friend told you about the freeze and then you told the recruiter and said, hey, I'm happy to expedite this. So you were very proactive. You didn't just go, oh, yeah. no, they're having a freeze. And so all those qualities that you possess, they're the things they really want, you know, that that higher order thinking, the critical thinking, obviously the, the data skills, regardless of what package it is, you know how to learn it. Yeah. And also that just can do. I can do this. That's what researchers do. They don't go, oh, I wonder how I could do that. If they've got a research problem, they just go, yeah. well, how will I do it? They'll find a way. And so that's what they're really looking for. But it is about that translating it for yourself first. So you can then put it to them so they can understand your value. There was another webinar where the topic was careers during a time of COVID. And, and the theme was, how do you transition from academia to industry because of what's happening to universities. And one person said, is it just a waiting game? And the speakers and I said, no, absolutely not. Do not just wait, like be proactive. Like you said, I was, I was applying for job after job. I feel like I applied for maybe 20 jobs. I was practicing my interview skills. 
even when I had no more job interviews on the horizon, a, a way of motivating hope for myself was just taking a step and all the steps over the past 10 years, like reaching out to somebody on Twitter, writing a paper with somebody on Twitter, staying friends with somebody who I used to work with. They all, I don't know, like the harder you work, the more luck you have kind of thing. Absolutely. That Louis Pasteur's quote, you know, chance favours the prepared mind. Yes. That's very true. And you can't know what will actually be the part that opens the door for you. But by doing all those things, one of them probably will. So that sitting back waiting and no one's going to knock on your door. That's particularly true. now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No one's knocking on anyone's doors. So there's a view that working in the commercial sector is a move to the dark side. There's even a PhD comic about that. And or that the roles will be boring or will lack purpose. What's your experience been like so far? I've got two answers for that. And I mean, the short answer is if you think working in the commercial sector is a move to the dark side, then don't do it. Stay in academia. But I would also say be prepared to be happy with the lack of job security. Be prepared to be happy with if you have a boss who you'd like to move away from for various reasons, be prepared that it's probably going to take you one or two years to find another job in another university in the city of your choice. Or are you prepared to move cities? Do you have a spouse that's going to follow you? Are you prepared to move your kids and spouse to another city? Like if you're okay with that, if you're okay with what the government is doing to the university sector, if you're okay with the redundancy, I was going to say the redundancies and redundancies happen everywhere. But if you, if you're okay with that, then sure stay. But I saw last November an entire faculty closed and I thought, ah, seen this before department was doing voluntary redundancies and i I, rem- I thought i've seen this happen before when big organizations start offering redundancies the people who can take jobs elsewhere the sharp motivated proactive people they just leave so i just thought and this is even before covid as before covid i thought i want to get a job somewhere else so that's the first part to the answer <laughs> if you're happy you stay but since i've left I've found these really surprising paradigms, which are that generosity is rewarded. They, they really encourage us to be kind to fellow staff members. They encourage us to be generous and thoughtful and go out of our way to help other people. Whereas my experience in academia is the focus is on publications and grants And if you're one of those people who wants to help students and help colleagues, you're not going to get papers, you're not going to get promoted. So the generosity I've heard, podcast, talk after talk, read books, don't be that lecturer who has students, don't have a couch because the students will sit down, don't have a box of tissues because the students will cry. Those things will prevent you being promoted. So... In my industry job, I'm surprised by the work-life balance, which is encouraged. Today, there was a video conference from a very, very senior person. And one of the questions at the end was, how's your work-life balance? Which I thought was a bit of a cheeky question. But I feel like if in academia, the person would have said, I love my job and I'm happy to be working till midnight. And, you know, who needs work-life balance if you love what you do? But this person actually said, that's a really good question. I need to focus, I really need to prioritise my family. 
And their answer was modeling to the staff that they wanted to remember their work-life balance and that we should all prioritize it even in really busy, difficult times. So that's glorious. I'm learning lots and lots of new things. In one of my recent positions, there was a situation where it kind of was you know, like writing papers that ended up being ghostwriting them and writing grants, but not having a name on them. And that's a little bit like ghostwriting a grant and not learning things there. Not sometimes people find that you're not giving credit for what you do. Now that also happens in industry. And I saw this in a friend's career, somebody in her industry job took credit for her work and she just went, nah, I'm going to look for a new job. And four weeks later, she had another job. Whereas I have colleagues where the boss is taking credit for the work and it will take them a year to find another job. You know, it's much better than I thought. It's interesting. The work is not boring. It's not dull. I'm kind of doing similar work before in health economics. I was looking at demographics of people working out how to do experimental design, looking at really massive data sets and working out which questions to focus on what's the best question with this massive data set? How do I do an analysis? And I'm doing the same thing now, but with supportive bosses who value my work, tell me to take care of my health, tell me to prioritize my health and family. So it's worked out well for me and I like it. That's very good news. And, you know, as you say, people may choose stay in academia. So, so I guess my point in asking that question is not to say one's bad, one's good. It is about what's good for you. But I guess I just want to demolish some of those myths, you know, that are out there that it's, you know, the dark side. How is it the dark side? Because I guess it has a link to commercial outcomes. So that's where people see that side of it. Yet, there's a lot of corporate social responsibility that's built into the organisation and they do a lot of really good work. And some of the policy that is around that's very good is coming from those large organisations like Deloitte and KPMG and the big consulting firms and so on. So they can actually lead the way. So there, there is really good work being done in all of the different sectors. Yeah. So really, that's what that's about for me is to say, use your research skills and find out more. Don't just listen to someone when they say that's the dark side. Go, why is it the dark side? And and what am I looking for? And would that fit my values? And would that give me the rewards that you're talking about? Because as you say, you love it when you're, you know, working with those data sets. Yeah, I, I think one of my key personality traits is curiosity and that might be true of many other scientists and PhD students. So I will love kind of reading the news during the day and saying what what current issues, what's coming up and then looking at the data that we have and saying I wonder what will be a really cool emerging question and how can we answer that with these data. Yeah, it's great. You've talked about some of this already, uh, the things that you've discovered that you're really valued for. So throughout your process of looking at other jobs within the you know, industry, with inverted commas, what do you think that PhD graduates actually have that they don't realise is valuable in these other jobs and yeah, sectors? It's such an important question and I think this should probably be explained to PhD students really more commonly in workshops because I think, I don't know if it was you that describes there's a graph where in the, it's got the decades on the x-axis and then the 
proportion of people who do a PhD who will end up in academia. And in the 80s, it used to be about, I don't know if it was 100 or 50%, but in recent years, even if you love academia, only 10% of people who get a PhD will end up in academia. So if you just look at the um, likelihood of staying, it's important to think about the critical skills. So they include things like experimental design, critical thinking, being able to think, also the ability to change your mind when presented with new evidence. Like imagine if all our politicians and leaders had the ability to look at evidence, make evidence-based decisions. Like I think one of the key things you learn when you're doing a PhD is that you're wrong and it's okay. And then you just change your mind and go in a new direction. Maths and stats, even if you're doing statistical analysis or data analysis of genomes of bacteria or worms or butterfly spots the analysis that you're doing if it's in r or um, svss or minitab the way that you approach data and those questions really really useful like most of my colleagues are using r who like who would have thought i'm really really surprised if you can just do something in r it's so useful this is a very big surprise to me also python our team is doing a python training course so People who can use R or Python, such a valuable skill. And I think I said previously, if I knew this, I could probably have had a more stable, better paying job if I had learned R and Python 10 years ago, if I'd diligently taken the steps to learn them. What other skills do PhD students have? The ability to write clearly. One of my job interview criteria, and I've seen other job interviews, if you can confidently, clearly write a paragraph that is really highly regarded in so many areas. I think PhD students forget what amazing skills they have learnt and developed. Also, curiosity and being prepared to think and say, all right, well, I've got this massive data set, but what questions should I answer? What questions will be rabbit holes? And also being able to pivot <laughs> in the face of a crisis and let go of a way of thinking. So resilience is really a key one. One of my a moment that I remember from my PhD was I was working in a forest. I had a four wheel drive. My field site was about five hours away from Sydney, kind of near Tamworth. And I was at UTS and I had the work car and it was diesel. And I had a research assistant who was a young person and I accidentally put unleaded in the car and it was a Sunday and I just went, oh man, what do I do? I, and I actually cried. I, I had this really tight schedule where I had to do all this work in four days and we could get it done if we worked from eight till six. I, like I rang my husband and I rang my friends. I was like, what do I do? I've got this car and I've got the wrong petrol in it. And what somebody eventually told me was one form of petrol is heavier than the other. So if every time you drive, you stop at each petrol station and fill up with diesel, the diesel will sink to the bottom. And then so the engine will only suck the more dense fuel. So after I finished crying and spoke to all the people, there was no mechanic shops or anything open because it was a Sunday and we were very, very remote. Uh, that a solution would be to fill the tank with diesel at every petrol station and I stopped about 10 petrol stations. So presumably the proportion maybe changed. And by the time I got to the field site, there was a lovely farmer who had a ramp. He just drained the whole car. A couple of weeks ago, I had 
something to overcome and it felt like a big hurdle. But I remembered, you know, I solved that diesel problem. I just had a little cry. I rang some people, asked for help. I asked some experts and I just solved it. And PhD students will have their fires going through their sites. There's massive problems or a tragedy in their family. So you learn resilience and you learn how to overcome hurdles without stopping, but just taking a deep breath, realizing that you've done hard things in the past. So resilience. That's one thing that's often talked about and I get a bit of um, pushback from people when they sort of talk about resilience as if it's something that you just have to stay strong. But resilience isn't that. Resilience is about coming back again. The previous podcast I did with Alison Rice, who you recommended to me, she has her mantra, which is, it's what you do next. And so I think that's really great because it's that if you go through it, yeah, you have a cry or you scream and shout and then you stop and and reassess and recalibrate and, and go on. And I feel that anyone that completes a PhD has that just by the nature of, of the program. All credit to everyone. It's a, it's a hard slog. So I think just the fact that you have the PhD and you said before that often PhDs, don't actually recognise what they have because I think being within a university, so many people have PhDs. Yeah. If you're looking at the population, it's it's like 1.5% of the population have a PhD. Wow. So it's pretty rare. And so people compare themselves against the distinguished researchers and right. that sort of thing. Whereas really they've got this incredible cache of skills that they've used and can get out and use in different situations as you explained so I think they undervalue themselves way too much it's true then there is the persistent view though that the PhD is only there to build a career in academia I hear from PhD candidates sadly often that they might be fearful to mention they're looking for a career in another sector their supervisor as they might be perceived to have failed or not be serious what are your thoughts on that perspective that's a really great question I think one supervisors have a responsibility to think about their students careers and I think supervisors really need to say I am mindful that 80% of people who have a PhD will not they're just are not the numbers, particularly during COVID and university restructures and um, job cuts, there aren't the numbers. So it's a very generous and mature supervisor who can say, I would recommend that you keep your options broad for your own self, you know, for your own health and well-being. I feel like emotionally mature supervisors will act like that. The students, well, okay, don't talk to your supervisor then or like have those conversations with people from industry hang out with people who've got PhDs who can give you a different perspective so as an example you know I would catch up with and have dinner with people and two of them are still in academia and two of them have left and you know the stories from these people and hearing about things like oh my boss tried to try to take credit for my work so I got another job four weeks later for example also another paradigm which is quite new to me is I'm in a team of about four people and two of them are currently doing PhDs and there's a, there's a PhD program a lot of PhD students in the organization and I have not met one who wants to work in academia 
and they'll just say job insecurity. Even one of their supervisors said that she shouldn't get a job in academia because of what's been happening in 2020. So get different paradigms, speak to people who've left and just say what's their experience. And I have one colleague who said she had a supervisor in the, that environment was a bit harsh and it was a bit toxic and for her mental health, she decided to leave and she hasn't been happier and she's got a job here, a job there. Yeah. So make friends with industry people, keep in contact and look at them. Are they happy? Do they like their job? Like, or is it this Stockholm syndrome? You're only happy. You know, the best thing is if you stay with me. So what are some of the actual practical steps? You've mentioned some, like get to know other people from industry and hear about the different perspectives and so on. But in terms, if you talked about your brother, great brother you have, who who is in industry and was able to help you. So I'm thinking of things like, you know, even writing the job application, how you approach that differently to one that you would write for one in academia. Yeah. So I think if you've kind of got like a, multi-year plan or a one or two year plan that one of the starting points for me was networking and going to industry events so I really love Franklin women and I went to a lot of their events they're so supportive and and there I met people who have left academia work in industry and have just got really rich lovely lives and there's also jobs that are just like academic jobs working in research labs and they're kind of like a support team of people who you can uh, either reach out to for being referees in my instance when I needed one in three hours I joined the Economic Society of Australia and I got a mentor a woman who was working in health economics and she told me of a couple of jobs in Newcastle they didn't pan out that got me working on my CV So step one would be network as widely as you can. Then step two, I would say apply widely and broadly. So that enabled me to practice writing my cover letter. And also each time you apply for a job, you refine your CV. I found it a really massive mental and psychological hurdle to work out how do I change my CV from academic with you know, like blah, blah, publications, blah, blah, grants, my eight numbers, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? No one, no one cares outside academia. Actually, I just kind of asked friends and they would say, think about this, think about that. And I had a really beautiful recruitment consultant when I applied for a job in November. She helped me refine my CV. And she said, there's this thing where you put what the project was and you put the outcomes. Doesn't Macquarie Uni have a group where they will help you write your CV? Is that right? Certainly for the people I work with, so the HDRs. So I run those workshops um, oh. on job applications. Your workshops. Yeah, trying to get people to come to them. Uh, that's what's funny. People say all this and then you run these things. But, you know, the people that do come, when I'm running those, it's, it's the concepts, the things you're talking about. How do you shift your thinking? What are you trying to get across? What's your value like your brother was talking about? And convincing yourself first and then being able to write that. And then, of course, there's a career service, which will have one-on-one, which I don't always have the time for. And there's uh, even a software program that the career service has where you can submit your CV for it to be judged, you know, by AI to wow. uh, see how close it comes. Because if people are applying for jobs where there's a lot of applications right. with some of the 
big employers, they'll use an application tracking system. And wow. so that's, that actually is an automated reader of job application before it ever gets to a person. So with this particular software that Macquarie University has through the career service you can do that as if it's going through an application tracking system and if it could get through an application tracking system then it's also going to get passed to human beings so there are a lot of services and I guess that's the thing I encourage people to do is to take advantage of that as I say I run these workshops I do this podcast so people can hear other people's insights like yourself I asked around for names of recruitment consultants and someone told me the name of someone who will work on your CV. So I sent her my CV and she said, oh, that's not good enough. For $300, I can refine it to make it good for industry. But then about a week later, I was offered an industry job. So, I mean, if you want to, there are people who you can pay, but I had the privilege of having friends who looked at it. So this is also from networking. I I think before I had kids, so maybe, no, I don't know. it feels like it was about 10 or 15 years ago. There was a workshop in Canberra for women in science and I went and I took a poster and the organiser of it, she gloriously and I are still friends slash email each other. We follow each other on Twitter. So she left academia for industry and she also looked at my CV and she sent me hers. I think I probably edited it about 10 times and each time made it a bit more polished, like took out this, put these you know, what did you achieve? How did you deliver something? Who cares about your publications? But how did you deliver project management, time management, budget? Achievements, that's what you're really looking for, yeah. So you've done something. People often write, I did this and I did this and I did this. And you go, yeah, and why should I care? I'm always saying to people, you need to answer the so what question. So yeah. when someone's reading it, you talked before about other sectors, they're not really interested in your H index or your publications and no. so forth. So what do they care about? That's you really looking into that organisation. What are they about? What's this job about? Delving into it as much as you can, talking to people that work there, which you also did, and then writing to that and responding to what their needs are because it's about them, not about you at that stage. What can you do for them? You've illustrated all of those things really well. You've had exactly this experience uh so what advice or messages would you give current phds particularly in this current situation with covid impacting universities and employment generally that's a really good question and the number of people who have reached out to me on linkedin and twitter saying how do i leave the university sector and get into industry i i can't keep up and reply to them all so i would say put some energy into moving outside of the university sector by one, working on your networks, even if it takes like one or two years. At the very least, you'll have a cheer squad. Like the Franklin women are just, they're so supportive and they'll just band around you like a team of cheerleaders. Uh, Go and seek. I put alerts on emails. So on seek and also I think there's ethical jobs and At first, it felt really, really hard. But then at one point in January or February, I was just applying for about one job every night. And I would just get the cover letter. I would look for the selection criteria. And then I would just change this. So by that point, I had a paragraph on how I have experience with project management, how I have experience with time management, how I have experience with, you know, occupational health and safety. And then I had a paragraph on how I have experience with data analysis and so they were all quite refined and by that point it wasn't a psychological hurdle because I'd done it so many times also for me it really worked 
reaching out to recruitment consultants. I'm a member of a running club and I said to all the people, do you know any recruitment consultants? And I got the names of about six and I emailed or called them and not many of them had jobs, but they at least put my resume on file or they would have a conversation. So it's kind of like writing a paper. You just do it 10 times and by the time you've done it 10 times, it's very polished. And Or giving a presentation for a conference. If you've given 10 presentations, it's not as scary. So just keep being proactive and keep trying. Also, I would say prioritise your mental and physical health with working from home and a lot of people I know found particular labs not very useful for their mental health. So whatever you can do, if it's like walking around the block, you know, I just got a dog to make sure that I would leave the house and get some fresh air, take care of yourself, have a five-year plan or a one or two-year plan and yeah, keep being proactive so that you have hope. That's such great advice. I love that you've used the word hope a couple of times over our conversation. You know, in Pandora's box, the last thing that was there was hope and we need to have hope. People who are successful in their careers are high hopers. So it is important and, and it's not that you can be like that all the time. I liked what you said before about the Franklin women and whatever you can find, you know, obviously for men is they have to find their own cheer squad. So yeah. find that circle of supportive friends to keep yourself going. And also, as you say, other people's perspectives are incredibly valuable. I thought of another very important point. People should listen to this podcast because one of your previous interviewees, Belinda, I thought, wow, she's so articulate and bright. I would love to work with her. And I tried to hire her, but then I got another job. So the time frame didn't line up. But now I've reached out to her and I've asked her to meet in R because she is very strong. I'm not. And because she was proactive and on your podcast, I just thought she's so bright. I want to work with her and learn from her and have her in my life. So everyone should listen to your podcast. <laughs> oh, that's so wonderful. Belinda is a star. And the fact that she had a different career, was an accountant and then came back to do science and then doing the PhD. And she also runs these workshops in craft and scrapbooking and all these other things. So she's really got this wonderful balance that you were talking about that you're being encouraged to have now she actually makes sure she has that herself and that she yeah she got involved in in that those software carpentry groups and been very proactive which is a word we both used quite a bit so that's lovely feedback thanks for that (laughs) I just want to thank you so much really appreciate what you've given us today Melanie because so many people need this this insight and we talked a few months ago and decided to leave it till you'd been in the role for a little bit and it's really interesting hearing what you've experienced particularly during COVID-19 it certainly added a dimension of challenge there. Thank you it's just been a pleasure and I hope people have more hope for their career futures uh, after listening to more of your podcast. Thanks. You have just listened to an episode of the Resourceful HDR podcast about the career and employment experiences of high degree researchers, that is, Master of Research, PhD and Professional Doctorate candidates, graduates and others in the HDR ecosystem. You can also find me on Twitter as Resourceful HDR and on LinkedIn, Sally Purcell at Macquarie University.
Macquarie University students and staff can also access the HDR Professional Development iLearn site. Mm -hmm.